This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. So today I'm super excited to introduce you, Chase Tuning. He's a health coach turned podcast coach. Hey, Chase. Thank you for hey. being here. Hey, good morning, Courtney. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So you were a health coach and now you're a podcast coach. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about okay. how, how did you become a health coach? Like what, what brought you into that arena? And then we'll discuss how did you transition from there? Yeah. So how did I become a health coach? Good question. Um, I went through pretty much every other job that you could have in, in the space. I say, uh, I worked with a, um, like a, uh, what's the best way to describe them? I guess like a health and wellness contracting company back home in Virginia. And we did a lot of things. Uh, we did on health, on-site health screening and health coaching for hospitals and big organizations. We staffed and ran, um, private gyms for like, you know, gyms that have their big HQ buildings and they had private gyms in them for their employees. And so we operated the gyms, we did personal training, group exercise, a lot of, you know, health coaching initiatives and training fitness and nutrition challenges and all that stuff for big companies. And then I, a big role that I had in that organization was uh, I was responsible for the, the city's fire department annual training. There was like this big test, this kind of, um, fake uh, fire run they had to do uh, simulating like breaking down doors and climbing buildings and dragging bodies. And I would run through with them for all the whole fire department. I would, you know, time them, monitor them and then give feedback. And then I would go to the fire stations, you know, afterwards and you know, provide training and feedback and nutrition training and counseling and programming. And um, before that I was in the army. And, and so I've always either worked in or just been, uh, a very active guy. And it was just for fun. You know, I had to maintain a certain level of physical fitness and readiness in the military. Growing up in the mountains, I grew up in close to 200 acres in the mountains of Virginia. So I was just always outdoors, always playing. I played sports my whole time. And then, yeah, and then after the military, I actually kind of fell into it as a profession because I was actually medically discharged. I, I suffered career ending injuries in the army. Uh, I was actually a patient for almost about a year and a half, my last year and a half of my time in the military. Uh, I had both my hips completely reconstructed. I suffered really bad hip, low back, hamstring injuries, and um, I became what's called non-deployable. And so I, I was too broken. And so they kicked me out basically. And being broken really sparked an interest in well, I don't want to be broken. I'm not choosing this. And so I need to learn. I really need, like, I've just been active, but I don't really know the human body. I want to know anatomy. I want to know physiology. 
I want to know nutrition. I want to know wellness. And so I began to study it. So I got out. I went to school in Virginia, studied exercise science, realized that I loved it. It helped me tremendously in my own rehabilitation and my own wellness journey. And then I realized that you could do it as a job. And then I went through all the things that I just shared. And then one day I realized that I just wanted to do it for myself. And uh, at that time, I actually had gone through kind of like the last thing was this health coaching certification. I went through the American Council on Exercise. Uh, I have been a certified health coach through ACE since 2015. Um, I actually, I renewed last year, even though I don't need it anymore. Uh, I don't, I don't have a corporate job that requires it or, and, but I just felt like it was a good thing to have. I, I love, you know, just kind of having that as a, you know, a little bit of authority, you know, I guess behind my name and my content. And so, yeah, that's, that's my health coaching journey really. Awesome. So what made you go into the army? Couldn't get into college. No, <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> um, I didn't know if I wanted to go to college. Okay. I it was senior year high school and my friends were all, you know, getting their letters in for college and applying to college. And I, I, I just felt some kind of way. Um, I had an idea of what I wanted to study. It kind of just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And I didn't really feel like it's what I really wanted to do. And also I had a lot of insight from my father. My dad was an army veteran. He, he was in for a long time. Uh, actually about the same time I was about six years. Uh, it's funny, my family, we love to serve, but I guess we just, we can't last. Uh, he was also injured. He was a Persian Gulf vet. He was injured in a helicopter accident and, uh, had his like entire lower spine rebuilt. Um, so we go hard, <laughs> I guess we can last about six years in the army and that's it. Um, so he was a great influence in my life and shared a lot of what he loved about the military and it was never forced on me. He just like, opened up the door to a lot of opportunities. He's like, look, apply to college, look at colleges. If you want to do that, let's do college. But if you want to learn more about the military, I'll talk with you. We'll go talk to recruiters. And so that's what we did. And then one day we went to the recruiter's office back in my hometown of Roanoke, Virginia. It's like this big, tiny little town. Yeah. And I originally was looking at the Air Force and they were just kind of really nonchalant. They like, here's a pamphlet. Uh, we might have a job opening for you. It, they just didn't really seem to recruit me. They, they weren't selling me, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were on our way out in the Army recruiting office right across the hall. And uh, got to talking with this one recruiter. Uh, he was a great salesman, great guy. I'll never forget him, Staff Sergeant Rue. And uh, he took me and my dad out to lunch. And then, you know, I went through their kind of job listings. We call them MOSs. And uh, I was like, look, this looks like a great opportunity. I would rather commit to this for something that is going to train me, prepare me for life in a lot of ways, um, pay for my college, whether I choose to get out after six years or, or go for the full 20 years. I, it just was a better option at the time. So it was a lot of family, like a lot of kind of family legacy and uh, pretty much every generation in my family, someone has always served um, all the way back to like civil war and you know a lot of family history there. So legacy was pretty appealing to me, especially since I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, it just seemed like a better decision over college at the time. Awesome. How did you get injured? You said you had several injuries. Yeah. So about year four, four and a half years in um, my job in the army, I was in the military intelligence community. Uh, I was a Russian linguist, actually. So I did a lot of uh, Russian 
um, studies, interpretation, uh, a lot of... So you speak Russian? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And how do you speak Russian? Is that something you studied or... No, I didn't. I didn't speak a lick of it. I didn't know anything until I joined the military. So there's this uh, like language academy, basically, that the military has. It's called the Defense Language Institute. Um, Just up from where we are now, it's up in Monterey, California. So for my entire first year, almost a year and a half, I was in the Army. Uh, After basic training, about three months, um, I went in every day, nothing but Russian. Uh, All... How did that come about? Like, did they decide you were going to be really good at languages and you should study Russian or? Somehow they did. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how, because I actually, I had to take Spanish summer classes. I was not good with language at all in high school. Um, But at the time they had a big need for this job. And so they gave me a lot of incentives when I enlisted, they gave me a $20,000 sign up bonus. They gave me a lot of college benefits and uh, it was like, look, we need this role. So we're going to give you everything that we have as an incentive. And there's a, a series of aptitude tests that you have to take in order just to qualify for this job. I don't know how I passed those tests. Like I said, I suffered a lot with even Spanish, um, but there was just something about the way that they teach, no matter the language that you up there for, um, Mandarin, Japanese, Arabic, uh, Serbo-Croatian, Italian, Russian, it's all native speakers. And so you go in, and your language course may be six months. For me, luckily for me, uh, I had one of the longest ones. It's a little over a year. Yeah. And they take an entire four-year collegiate academy you know, curriculum and condense it down into either six months or a year, depending on the language. But you learn from all native speakers. You learn language. You learn uh, geography, history, um, economy, politics. I mean, you learn a lot more than just the language. So you're in this total immersion bubble that really... I'm not saying everyone always makes it through. I I definitely struggled uh, through it, but they really set you up to win. Um, So day one, no English. It's just Russian all the time. And uh, yeah, a little over a year later, uh, you have this, again, this final test that you take, a a written portion, a reading portion, and then we have what's called uh, an OPI, an oral proficiency interview where you meet with two to three other instructors that you've never met before. They, they can't have any bias with you. And so then it's just you in a room for 30 minutes, an hour, and you've got to just hold the conversation. It could be anything from, hey, give me directions to the airport. Tell me about your childhood. What do you want to do you know, after the military? Just converse. And it's really a measure of your, your ability. And, um, yeah, so that, that's how they picked Russian for me. So based on how and where I scored in that initial application, that initial, um, aptitude test, they're like, Oh, okay. You scored better in, I don't know what area, uh, like, uh, you know, Cyrillic or visual and they, how you score in certain areas, they will then assign you a language that they think you're best suited for. Amazing. Yeah. So that was your role. And then what happened? How did you come in? Right. Yeah. So that was my role. I did that. I I worked. um, I could tell you more, but I'd have to kill you. You know, I did a lot of uh, (laughs) secret squirrel stuff, Um, you know, stateside and abroad. (laughs) I I need that men in black tool. I need to wipe everybody's memory after this. But um, so I did a lot of, uh, you know, missions and contributing to intelligence work for, for the U.S., for other nations uh, for a lot of stuff, you know, stateside and abroad. And I really, I enjoyed that role. It was a lot of fun, but I wanted to do something different. 
And so I was actually, I wanted to do something different, but honestly, Courtney, I was in a very dark place in my life at that time. I actually had just lost my father. He passed away to a terminal illness uh, at age 19. I'd only been in the army for about a year and um, he, he passed away. Wow. So did your father pass away before you got injured? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so he passed away and then another two years or so went by and I was just really, I was struggling. I was in a really dark place with my mental health and uh, just the will to live, honestly. And I I knew that if I applied to go on some other jobs and different deployments, uh, get out of that job a little bit and just go, you know, be a soldier, work, you know, different forms of intelligence work, but just in Afghanistan, go to Iraq, you know, put myself, I wanted to put myself in harm's way, basically. Um, and just didn't care if I came home or not. And so before you can do that, uh, you know, I worked through the ranks, you know, you have to get promoted for certain jobs, for certain missions, you have to go to certain training, certain schools. And so I was doing all of these things. And then one was looking really promising. Uh, the first like two assignments that I volunteered for fell through. Uh, and then one was looking pretty promising, but there was a, a series of training that I had to go through and it's just war games basically. And so uh, I was in Texas at the time and we were out in the quote, you know, desert of Texas. It's really hot and miserable there. And, you know, it's, you're simulating, you're training like how you're going to train in war. And we've been out there for less than a week. Um, Yeah. Not even a week, I think. And just, you know, running on maybe like two hours of sleep a night, um, just wearing all my body armor, all my gear. Uh, I was um, what's called a squad leader at the time. I worked my way up to be uh, what's called an E6, a staff sergeant. Um, And so I was in a leadership role. And my team and I were like hiding in the bushes, kind of hiding behind this little hill. And the the fake enemy, it's called the op for the opposing force, was coming through in a convoy, you know, foot soldiers, vehicles. And um, they were coming through and we were going to lead this ambush and attack them. And in the heat of the moment, honestly, the whole situation, the whole thing is very much a blur and kind of blacked out. But I just, re- I just popped up again in all my gear, my body armor running on empty for days. And I just popped up and led the assault. And then all of a sudden, as fast as I popped up, I remember just falling down. I remember just screaming in pain. I, I thought I felt like I got shot like in my back or in uh, like my hip area. Um, turns out that in that movement, um, it was just a compilation of things. I, I tore my hamstring, um, overly, severely, overly corrected the direction of my back and my L4 and L5 went one way and the rest of my spine and my body went the other way. But a lot of trauma to my whole midsection, my hamstring, my hips, my back. And uh, I was, it's called medevac. I was medically evacuated out of the training, um, pulled from the training, pulled from any possibility of that deployment as well. And, um, things just got worse from there. And then, uh, maybe two, maybe two or three months later, um, my doctors were like, you actually need, you need new hips. Um, so at 21, I was pulled from my regular unit, pulled from any possibility of that deployment, um, and put in transferred bases, transferred units and put into a medical hold unit. And for the next almost a year and a half, I was a patient. Uh, I, Went into the hospital. Um, I've got about you know foot long scars or so running from the top of my knee on either side, on the side of my quad, up to the top of my glute, um, where they just slice me open, re- surgically remove my femur, reshape it, reconstruct it, 
put it back in, clean up the joint and a lot of the damage and trauma that it's been suffered there and then put two rods in through my femur to keep me stable. And then I was in the hospital for days and bedridden for days. Um, and I would, I was just useless. Um, and then I would, I was, <laughs> it's like a lot. Um, yeah. I would then, you know, kind of just work my way, you know, to being able to move myself again, um, get going to a walker, to a wheelchair, to a cane, and then finally to a point where I could go to physical therapy. Uh, and then once about eight months, eight or nine months later, once I could walk again, I would learn how to walk and body weight, you know, load bear my own body weight. Um, they're like, okay, now we're going to do the other side. So I just then went back in and they did my left hip. And so that was my life for almost the last year and a half. Wow. So it was yeah. a year and a half of about yeah. and wow. So you were saying that going into right before the injury, about two years leading up to that, you felt like you weren't in the greatest mental state that your father had passed two years before that. So um, what's interesting to me is that it, you said your father got injured at six years also. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Um, so I would, I was thinking how it would be so great to have that conversation with him. Um, right. Yeah, that would be yeah, right. Think about, think about like the, the, how did he get through that? Um, so I'm wondering you were in a dark place and then you had this really traumatic experience that would have broken lots of people. You know, many people would not have, uh, recovered from that and been able to, it's not just the physical rehabilitation. It takes a lot of, uh, inner strength and, you know, uh, mindset to be able to, a lot, yourself, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering what was it that, you know, spoke to you to be able to motivate to, to want to get better, to want to pull yourself out, to want to be able to walk again? I mean, did you have belief that you would be able to walk again? I, I didn't really, I knew that I would get back to a point to where I could walk. Um, but the way that um, my, my surgeons were talking, the way that everybody was talking to me uh, through then my medical board process was, you're not going to be the same. Um, they're like, you, you're, you know, walking is going to be great. If we can get there, you're, you're definitely, you're never going to run again. Um, exercise is going to be very, very different, very, very minimal for you. Um, no more weight bearing, no more high impact, no more, you know, really lifting strength training. Um, just because of the nature. I mean, your hips are your primary movers for, everything in your entire body, you know, yeah. um, your root chakra. yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of need it to function. Um, it definitely, you know, oh, if that's exactly. not working. Yeah. Exercise is out of the question. And, um, and especially because after my second surgery on my left hip, about a couple of weeks afterwards, I was at home just bedridden again. And I actually was on the couch at this time. And uh, I, I just moved ever so slightly. Uh, maybe I got a little carried away and tried to drag my leg or something. Um, and I suffered another injury, uh, retore my labrum in there. And the surgeries were so fresh that they couldn't go in to correct it. So I had a big setback with that. Um, so like, look, you're just going to have to like, be even more useless and do nothing even more. Um, to, to work through this new injury. And so they painted this picture pretty early on of like, look, anything that you're going to be able to do, um, it's going to be very, very different than what you were used to. You're not going to be able to do a lot of things that you were used to. And it's going to be years. Uh, like I said, uh, 
it, it took about 15 months for me even to just get to a point after both surgeries to where I was functional, I was walking, but I was still, I kept a cane in my car pretty much at all times. Um, and when I signed out of base, when I left the military, I you know, had my cane next to me and I had my wheelchair on the roof of my car. Um, so I, it wasn't looking good. It was looking like, you know, decent, but nowhere near life that I knew it as. And I was 24 at the time. So it was a lot to kind of process. Um, but to answer your question directly, there were really two things that I give all credit to that were pretty much my saving grace for not just going into a darker place and just suffering a lot more. One was the environment that I was in. This unit, it was a medical hold unit for a lot of people like me that were suffering really, really extreme injuries. Um, but we also were a, uh, uh, like a really high level trauma burn level um, center for a lot of victims coming back that were in, suffering from, you know, IED explosives and, um, you know, third degree burns, head to toe or in amputees as well. So when I could show up, uh, when we did have any sort of normal army or formation that I was used to, you know, uh, I would show up to men and women that were completely unrecognizable, um, completely deformed, missing legs, arms, um, wheelchair bound for the rest of their life, you know, wrapped in gauze, head to toe, um, just, just no longer human beings, you know, on the surface level. And a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them just had incredible attitudes about it. And I would, I would hobble up with my cane to formation, or I would wheel up next to the other guys in the wheelchair and they'd be cracking jokes. And I was like, like, how, how your life at that point, I thought, I was like, you know, your life is over you know, your life as a soldier is over. Like, this is what we signed up for. And a lot of people had been in for years and years and like me, you know, wanted to retire, wanted to do the full 20 years. And your life professionally and personally is now completely drastically different. And a lot of them just had better attitudes. And so being around people like that for 12 months, 15 months will definitely get you kind of like thinking differently. It sounds and, like the biggest shift was a, a sense of gratitude. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, I, again, I was very grateful, very grateful. Um, what I went through definitely sucked a lot. It sucked a lot. Yeah. And um, you see these other people who had seemed to have a gratitude for life. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that had an impact on your perspective. hundred percent. Yeah. And like I said, not to discredit what I went through, but you know, I was like, you know, Hey, at least I have my arms and my legs. Um, at least I'm, like I said, a lot of these people, at least I'm recognizable as a human being. Um, so again, it really forced me pretty quickly, or I should say over time, uh, being around having those people in my environment really helped me squash a lot of those other feelings and thoughts. Um, and the second point was, um, this phrase that my dad had said his entire life that I'd heard as a child uh, that he actually picked up from his time in the military, his unit, they had this creed, this saying, and it was ever forward, ever forward, ever forward, ever forward. And he brought that home with him. And so as kids growing up, me, my brother, my sister, my whole family, our whole community, because when he got out of the army, um, after he went through his you know, own back rehab and stuff like that, he went the entrepreneur route and uh, we opened up a bunch of coffee houses and a steakhouse. And so it was pretty, I mean, like it's a very small town, but very well known in our community. Yeah. And um, everybody knew those two words, everybody. 
And it was like, no matter what, just keep going, keep going, keep going, like learn the lesson, but keep going. And, you know, the problem before you is not blocking you. It's just, you know, it's something new and unique that you need to learn from so that you can move through it. And it was just like a phrase that I was like, all right, cool, whatever, dad. Um, And, but then when he was sick, he had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS was his terminal illness. Um, I mean, he had a very escalated case in about 18 months from diagnosis to when he passed away. And very quickly, he lost his ability to speak, uh, couldn't eat for himself, went into a wheelchair. And then last like three, four months, he was alive. He was in a hospital. And even all through that, literally just every day dying a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. He never once complained. Um, we never once, you know, at least saw him cry or like cry out, God, why me kind of thing. He was just this beacon of this phrase that he chose to live his life by and that he chose to share with his family. And um, so that community of those people who had it worse than me, but a lot of them were more grateful. Uh, and then that phrase from my father was something that I just chose to latch onto um, and really, really helped get me through. And what did it mean to you ever forward? What, what did that, it, it, clearly it was very special and yeah. it propelled you, but what, what, how did you interpret that? What did it do for you? You know, honestly, Courtney, I, I didn't really know at the time. Um, okay. it, it's, it's like one of those motivational phrases or a picture that you just, that you see and you read and like, oh, okay, I'll just be happy. Uh, or, <laughs> oh, like insert motivational quote here. But yeah, it's a really good question. I, I didn't yet attach a meaning to it. I, it was just something that it worked because it worked, but I didn't really know why or I didn't really have a personal attachment to it. Um, I think looking back, it was really, it was a way for me to think positively of my father because I had so many now new, just really traumatic injuries and or, um, uh, memories. And just like anytime I would see him, you know, he was worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, burying my father at 19, my hero, um, he was my best friend and he was the reason I did a lot of things. We had a credible relationship and uh, I really looked up to him in a lot of ways. And so in a, in a way, if I was like, if I can latch on to ever forward, it's a positive memory. It's a positive tether to him so that it helps me just stop remembering him just in a horrible way. Um, it's a very cruel, horrible disease. And, um, and it took me over a decade to, to really answer your question, to, to attach a meaning to it. Um, I, I didn't really ever deal with that trauma. I didn't ever really deal with that grief. Um, I just stuffed it down. I suppressed it down and I it never allowed myself to feel and to go through that. And trauma, physical trauma, emotional trauma, trauma, all of these things, you know, it can work for a little period of time. You know, we can stuff it down for a while, but um, like, what's the phrase? You know, the body keeps score. Oh, and, great book. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. It's great. And um my body could no longer wait on me to get my shit together, basically. And I began to, I was diagnosed PTSD. Um, I would have severe panic attacks, anxiety attacks, anything that would trigger me back to that time in the military, more specifically back to that time with my father. Um, I many times would swerve my vehicle off the side of the road because I would hear a song that my dad and I used to listen to. 
um, in a movie theater, uh, if someone died or there was a scene that reminded me at all, like them covering the sheet of my father's body, uh, I would have panic attacks. I would have to leave, leave the theater. Um, and it reached this boiling point. My, my then girlfriend, my wife now, uh, we were watching a movie and the same thing happened. And I probably had the worst panic attack, like almost, almost like seizure, like, um, and like she couldn't get, couldn't get me to snap out of it. I was just in the worst shape I'd ever been. And she's like, you can't keep living your life like this. Um, I can't keep living my life with you like this if you're not going to work through this stuff. And, and it was kind of ironic because this was at a time in my life when all the other, uh, you know, fitness stuff, I was, I was hitting my macros every day. I was training like eight days a week. I was like, I'm the best, right? I'm, I'm health. I'm fitness. I'm good. Extra day in the week to train. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. But uh, there was this part of my health, part of my, my wellness that I was just suppressing for a long time. And my body finally was like, no, we can't not deal with this anymore. And so, yeah, it was a big trigger for me, a big moment when I then I was on again, off again with professional help, therapist, mental health over the years. But um, due to my own inability to commit to that, to want to work through that pain and that experience, I never stuck with it. Um, but I had to at that point. So I then sought out regular mental health help. Uh, I began to do a lot of self-work. That's when I kind of really discovered um, you know, self-help books, personal development. Um, I began to journal. I began to kind of just let it all come out. And, and through that time, to really answer your question, I promise there's an answer in here somewhere. <laughs> it's um, all great though. <laughs> through that, I realized that it was all because I was suppressing this memory. I was suppressing the real meaning behind Everford. And so when I fully just ran towards that, that horrible time in my life, that loss of my life, the loss of my family, um, and just finally allow myself to work through it. And it took many, many months just to be able just to, to sit with it. Um, I realized that I was not honoring these two words. I, I was just using it. Like I said, it was just a catchphrase it, I, and it was just, it was a facade. It was a mask mm -hmm. and I was lying to myself and I was lying to everybody around me. And, uh, I decided then that, you know, ever four is going to be the thing that I just completely embody. I'm going to grab hold of my father's memory and his legacy and no longer allow it to dictate my life, but I'm going to use it to fully live my life. And uh, that was it. It was, um, I, I've said before that I think that this was my father's final lesson for me, like a final, you know, father to son lesson. Yeah. Um, of course, I would love for him to be here. I would love um, for my family to still have him, but it's almost as if like this had to happen. Mm -hmm. um, he had to go through this horrible suffering for us to finally understand this message. And I say that, and I say that because it has meant and transformed my life tremendously, uh, my brother's life tremendously, um, everybody in our family because of what it has now become to mean. Uh, but more importantly, what it has become to mean for a lot of other people. So when we decided to make Everford real um, and kind of like, allow it to be something beyond us and as a way of therapy honestly to work through this loss and trauma um my brother introduced it as a brand first back in 2014 i believe it was um 
he began to kind of do this whole social media thing. He was a growing fitness YouTuber. And um, he then like the thing to do was to create merch, create t-shirts. And so he wanted to do that. He did one, it worked out kind of well, but he's like, I, I want to take my name out of it. So he created Ever Forward Apparel. And it was a gym, athletic, athleisure wear company. Uh, and then since then, I mean, he's had tremendous success. Uh, he's one of the top fitness YouTubers out there, just hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Oh, younger than you. He's younger. He's four years younger than me. Okay. And is it just the two of you in the family? We have a sister in the middle. Yeah. I'm the oldest of three. And so once I saw the success of that, um, and I saw how it was helping him, and I saw, more importantly, the feedback of people just not only consuming content, not only wearing a t-shirt, but sharing the message with his audience and then them being able to take it and make it their own, apply meaning to their life and just kind of be like, uh, not to play, the, you know, lightly or play this down, but, you know, me too kind of thing. It was like a, sure, a personal sure. me too kind of thing. Yeah. And the feedback that we would get. Of like, you know, yeah. The relationship. Yeah. Exactly. Relationality. Yeah. <laughs> It helped so many people. And then now over the years, um, everything that he has done with it and his personal brand. And then when I launched uh, Ever Forward Radio, that was kind of my, my way to contribute. That was, all right, I want to have, because talking about it, working through it, working through that loss helped me tremendously. So I was like, I need to do this more. So I, I was like, I want to create a podcast because podcast then. That's on. Like when did you start talking about it? You went from, you were coaching others in health, fitness. Yeah. Yeah, I was a, a clinical health coach at the time. I'd been doing that for several years and I was living in Washington, DC at the time. And I had this horrible commute and I had a lot of time in the car and I'd be, someone recommended this fitness podcast, shout out Sean Stevenson, model health show, still listen to it. Amazing. He's the homie now. Um, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Not only is it helping me, but I would then I would go to my job. I would see my patients work with my clients and I could help them more. I had new information, new resources, new data, new science, new ideas, and it made me better at my job. And so I was like, I want to do this. If listening helps me better, helps me in my personal life and professional life, imagine if I was the one doing it. So I got the idea, um, spent too long uh, trying to figure it all out, a couple months, like how do I get a mic? How do I upload? How do I do all these things? Um, and then the name just came to me, This like pretty much the second that I thought that I knew it. I'm going to do a podcast. It's going to be called Ever Forward Radio. There's no other option. Yeah. yeah. So that was my yeah, option. That was my option all along. Like that yeah. was obvious. <laughs> it, was, it was obvious. It was the only choice. Yeah. So I, I launched Ever Forward Radio January 22nd of 2017. Um, and I chose that day because that was the memorial of my dad's passing. That was his 12 year memorial, his 12 year anniversary since he passed in 2005. And, um, and then I did it just as fun as a fun side hustle thing uh, during lunch breaks on weekends, you know, waking up early uh, and I grew it that year and then I began to monetize it. And then the end of 2017, I left that job uh, to go full time with my podcast to add more episodes to try to monetize it more. And uh, I created my own business ever forward coach. And so the more that I just, like I said, ran into that memory, ran into that, that those two words and that meaning, uh, I found more meaning for my life and created more and was able to help more people through, through that lens. 
That's amazing. So it sounds like the thing that you were avoiding for so long ended up really in your path. 100%. Opening up a a space for healing and growth for you. Like success and yeah, and personal. The most traumatic time of my life, what I would call, you know, then call the worst period of my life of just loss and pain and confusion and just, just being lost, just sleepwalking through life and just very, very just, um, very asleep, very lost, how I describe it. Um, it became my saving grace. It, it gave me purpose. It gave me meaning. Um, I cannot imagine doing anything else in my life right now. I, I, like I said, this was the final lesson that my father gave us. And I would love to have him here. I would love to talk with him about, you know, you know, army days and, you know, the, the injuries that we went through and like why none of us can make it past six years, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, it had to happen. It yeah. had to happen. And we now have very gratefully, very gratefully <laughs> um, gone on and the brand has been a huge success. Um, the show, uh, you know, last month, I think we reached over 1.3 million. Um, downloads and, um, and then all the stuff that my brother does and that I do and, uh, him and I are the ones that kind of like, it's, it's a, it's a brand. It's a, it's a, our business, but you know, everyone in my family has their own personal connection to it and we all have grown with it. Um, and it's been very helpful to us and has, has helped. It's reached millions of people now over the years. It, and it's, and it's just, uh, it keeps growing. It's amazing. That's really amazing. I want to back up a little bit cause you were talking about how it took you essentially a year and a half just to be able to walk again. And then yeah. you became a health and fitness coach and you were, you created a whole extra day in the week to train. So <laughs> really quite the master. Uh, most of us only have seven, but you had eight. Uh, so I'm very curious, like what that journey was like, because it sounds like you were very athletic growing up. That was a huge part of your identity, your passion. Um, what was it like to go from not being told that be, being able to walk was, you know, really something to hope for? to, you know, becoming very quite, quite an athlete again. Um, like was there, yeah. What was that journey like? Um, yeah. Anytime that I, I, I get asked about my story, it just reminds me of really how wild of a ride it has been. Um, yeah, growing up, I didn't know what it was to not be active every day. I was outside playing, you know, from, when the sun came up to when the sun came down and sometimes even later than that, um, just running in the mountains. I played baseball my whole life. I played lacrosse. I played sports, um, played with my brother and sister and our family and just, you know, in the mountains with, we had a, we never had less than like five dogs. Uh, we had a huge garden. Um, I would help my grandfather garden. We ate most of the food that we grew, um, active, being active, being wellness was just how I was living. I didn't know there was any other way. And, um, and then in the military, again, it's, I'll say the most active job in the world, no matter what you're doing. Um, every day you're training every, you have all these other heightened physical requirements of the body and the mind. Um, and then one day, literally it all snapped and it all went away. And, uh, I was 20, I was 21 at the time when that initial injury happened. So for the first 21 years of my life, I was go, 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 and then hard stop. Um, it sucked. It really did. Um, and it, 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 
and again, like the, the things that usually suck the most only suck while we're going through them. Yeah. Um, but I got a lot of free time on my hands. Uh, I was, if I wasn't in the hospital, you know, if I wasn't doing physical therapy, I was just at home pretty much most of the time, you know, on my couch, laying in bed. Um, and so I began to read, uh, I began to learn. That's when I really first picked up uh, a book about the human body. Um, I'll never forget. It was you, the owner's manual by Dr. Oz and I think another physician. And it was, it was like a Bible. It was this big, big, thick book of like anatomy, nutrition, physiology, but they kind of broke it down for layman's terms. Uh, it was very understandable. I was just like, I was fascinated. I was highlighting like everything and earmarking everything. And, and then that would send me down a, a wild rabbit hole, looking things up on the internet. And so, I mean, honestly, the time went by pretty fast now that I'm looking back on it because I was just sponging it up. I was soaking it up. Uh, I was learning what is possible. I was learning all of these processes that were going on in my body, in my mind, and really how at a time when I thought I lost all control over my body, when I thought that I lost um, the ability to, to manipulate anything, because to me at the time, I thought you can't walk, you can't move, you can't train, you can't run, you're com you completely relying on other people for everything to to go to the bathroom, to shower, um, to get groceries, to do anything, um, to learn that I could actually influence my body, influence my mind. It really kind of reinstated a sense of power back. Um, I was like, Oh, you know, if I get these groceries instead of these, then this is going to happen in my body. And, you know, I can maybe heal a little bit faster. I can at least feel better. I can increase my mood. Uh, I started learning about, you know, hormones and sleep cycles and, um, things other than caffeine to increase energy, you know, cellular, mitochondrial health and life, micronutrients. Um, and it was just fascinating to me. And yeah, actually, I don't think I've ever really thought about it this way. Um, it, it, it reinstated a sense of, of power and control over my body, over my life during a time when I, I had none, really. Right. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that, you know, is so interesting about human beings is that we need challenge in life, you know, too much challenge and we can't survive, you know, we yeah. buckle under that and yeah. literally we can't survive, but too little, you know, we don't survive either. Um, and I think that's a common misconception, you know, people think they want things to be easy and, you know, just to sail through. But the reality is that the challenge is where we, we grow and we actually, we find a purpose and meaning and joy and fulfillment through that challenge. Um, so yes, I think yes. you were able to find through this really hard time a way to through the challenge. It was empowering, actually, is what it sounds like. You know, even though I, I didn't think so at the time, or I didn't really know, um, yeah. but absolutely, hundred percent, yeah, yeah, because you found that you know, having been always, you know, I think sometimes you know when we're given gifts, we we take those things for granted. You know, we don't, you know, if we're a super athlete or we're a, you know. Uh, genius mathematician, whatever, or, you know, a uh, genius pianist or whatever. Yeah, we, yeah. we assume that's just, you know, the way, you know, we don't, we don't have a perspective of that. That's really a gift that a lot of people may have to work really hard for. Absolutely. And then you, when you have, you know, when things change and shift, it's very empowering to realize that you could find another way mm. to still do the things that you love and to still, yeah. Yeah, have some control over your body. So when you first started to um, get back to a place where you were walking and you 
it sounds like you just have this passion for health, fitness, wellness. This is a part of who you are. It was a part of your identity. You're like, I'm going to get back there. And you wanted to inspire other people the same way. What was that journey of like, because I would imagine there's got to be some fear, you know, in, uh, they told you that you yeah. was to walk. So don't, don't push beyond that. Right. So what was it that propelled you to want to then push those limits train eight days a week, you know? <laughs> um, and how do you feel that the movement itself, do you feel that in that in any way helped you to heal? Did it give you both mentally and physically? Oh yeah. I, at that time, uh, my surgeries were in 2000, 2007 and 2008. Um, so it's been a little while now. I got out of the army in 2009. So it's been about, yeah, like 12 years since the first one. Um, at that time, the recommendation, the doctor's orders from my orthopedic surgeon, my rehab specialist, uh, my physical therapist, my pool therapist, my occupational therapist, all the therapists were do nothing. It was rest. It was don't move. Your body needs to heal. And to a certain extent, I will agree with that for some things. Um, and then I learned my lesson that second time, you know, I moved, literally just moved, I grabbed my leg and moved it on the couch and suffered huge injuries against my labrum. Um, but knowing what I know now, movement absolutely is crucial. And I know people who have gone through similar surgeries now in the military, out of the military, um, the, the exact kind of term for what they corrected uh, was femoral acetabular impingement, FAI. And so I know people have gone through that and now the surgery is drastically different. It's way less invasive. They actually go in um, anteriorly instead of you know through the side. Uh, the incision is much smaller, it's less downtime. So the surgery has progressed, the rehab process has progressed and it's actually, they want you up and moving you know, they actually want toe touch weight you know, on a, a walker or whatever. I think after within like the first week wow. um, and me at that time, they're like, don't move in bed. And I was in a hospital for days. And after that, you know, transported to my home. Um, movement absolutely is crucial. Um, a body at rest stays at rest. A body in motion stays in motion. And once I began to realize that for myself, and again, the physical aspect then came after the other stuff I was telling you about nutrition. Um, once I realized that I could change, if I changed what I ate, I could change how I felt and contribute to my healing process. And then once I could move a little bit more, I began to become more empowered and show my mind and show my body that, wait, we know we actually can do something. It, and it's not anywhere near what you want to do or what you used to be able to do, but you can do something. And um, I, in the beginning, it was, um, I had a lot of help still. Uh, I remember when I went to college, when I was touring VCU, where I went to undergrad for my exercise science program, registering for classes. Uh, I was still on a cane, very slow, and I had to have my mom. <laughs> At 23 years old, I had to have my mom meet me at campus and like help me walk around. Um, but then once I, again, I, I studied more, I began to learn more about exercise programming, anatomy, um, just strength and conditioning. Uh, and then about year two of that program, I really began to train again. I wasn't really doing anything lower body, but I would go to the gym, use machines. Um, you know, I would sit down, use machines, sit down, use weights, um, always under the guidance of my doctor. I was under you know, pretty close watch with uh, a new orthopedic surgeon back in Virginia. And they're like, 
if you feel okay, as long as you're not introducing any new pain. And this was something, this is something that has stuck with me over the years, uh, personally. And when I would work with clients was no matter what you have to a certain degree, uh, to a certain degree, no matter what you have going on physically, um, as long as you can do something and you are not making a condition worse, if you are not making pain worse, then if the pain stays the same, if the condition is exactly the same and there's no chance of it getting worse because of this activity, then you owe, you have to move, you have to do something. And that, that snowballed pretty quickly for me. And luckily at the time, like I said, you know, my brother, he had begun to train for, you know, for the first time really, and he was really into it. And I was back with my family. I was back with my brother. And so I got bonding time. I got bro time. I got gym time. I was building relationships. And a, a lot of those relationships happened because of the gym. It happened because of movement. And so a lot of my healing not only came from movement, but through the community along with that. And that was another reason, as I'm kind of saying this out loud, um, that I owe a lot of my healing to is it wasn't what I could do or prove to my own self or my own body, but it was the support that I had in that world, in the gym, you know, in the field, whatever. Um, I, a couple of times uh, I got a little carried away in, in those beginning stages and my brother had to help escort me out of the gym. Um, and like, he would like chase, don't do that again. Like I don't want to go to the hospital. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was very necessary. Uh, movement, absolutely. In any way that I could get it, I did it. Um, but yeah, to, I think the other part of your question, there is still definitely fear. Um, yeah. Even though it's been yeah, going on 12 years since the very first incision, very first surgery, um, whether it's real or not, or it's just in my head, or if it's physical, mm -hmm. I, I do have caps. Um, I'm very, very proud of the level of, of fitness and training that I've achieved during COVID. It's definitely taken a hard dip. Um, no gyms in LA, at least for me, but, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, oh, yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> but you know, again, I'm grateful to be moving and stuff, but you know, the level of fitness that I achieved, um, I actually kind of got into powerlifting and uh, I never competed or anything, but I was like, you know, what? I, that's why at my max deadlift I've hit is, uh, I've done 415 pounds. Uh, you know, four plates and I got a little carried away and threw those two small ones on the end and, you know, grinded it out, but I did it. But during that time and during like my max bench and everything, anything that relies on that hip hinge, um, the second that I go up and this is a battle I have with every rep is you're going to blow your hips. You're going to blow your hips. You're going to blow your hips. And so it's a very kind of mind body duality. Um, and I do really think that there is a potential shred of truth there because I'm adding a lot of load, a lot of strain. Um, and I just have to be mindful of that. Uh, I have this like horrible doomsday fiasco uh, thing in my head to where I'm going to go for a new PR one day and I'm just going to blow my hip out again, or the rod's going to shoot out of my hip. Um, so I, I, I just kind of, I honor my body. I say, thank you for letting me get to this point. Um, but I'm not going to disrespect you any further. I'm not going to try to push it any further, even though it might be possible. I just don't want to risk it. Uh, especially after that injury of my left hip again, every year I go back for follow-ups with um, orthopedists and they actually want to go back in and redo a lot of that, the left surgery. Um, and so it, if I ever get to a point to where the pain is really unbearable and just things get worse, I'll consider that. But as long as, uh, as long as I can stay upright and move, um, and not have to go under the blade, uh, I'll keep moving. Yeah. That's so powerful. You're saying how 
it, it's a really that fine line adjudicating between the risk versus reward, which I think is what yeah. we need in life, right? Yeah. Life is all about that, adjudicating yeah. risk versus reward. And I think with movement, it's so important because people find it, I find that people fall into very, with not just movement with everything, you know, very binary kind of thinking, you know, it's like, oh, well, I can't do anything or, yes, oh, no. I can't well, do yeah. everything. And yeah. I think, you know, having those traumas, whether, you know, I know you said you might be in your head. I think, you know, there probably is an element of truth to it because you know your body and having been through so much physically, you know, I know this for myself, like you become more in tune. Your body speaks to you. Absolutely. And it, yes, I think yes. most people just don't listen to those cues. They're so used to either pushing through or ignoring it altogether. But I think there's something really powerful for, you know, I, I always think about it as like, you know, if you're competing, that's great and that's what you do. But, you know, if you're somebody who just loves to move, then the goal is to be able to keep moving for as long as you live, right? For as long as possible. So, you know, that should yeah. be the end goal. And whatever's going to help further that end is really the path to take so it is now 100 percent. and for a long time due to a lot of the community that was around I, I it was very i got caught up i got excited i was like oh yeah like let's do it like let's body build let's power lift let's crossfit um because being a part of the community mattered more to me than actually the physical task at hand and again i was just grateful to move um but you know I've, i'm training smarter now uh biofeedback, paying attention to my mind and my body is crucial really for kind of helping dictate everything I do every day. Um, and I'm with you. Absolutely corny. It's, I just, I, I just want to be upright and mobile. I want to be moving. I want to maintain a healthy weight, a healthy muscle mass, body fat ratio. Uh, I want to, you know, get my labs every year, do my physical. I, I want to not, I'm not saying I just want to hold the line. I don't want to just be, you know, standard. You just want to count yourself and improve, yes, but exactly. not to the point where you're set back. Yeah. I want to do the most that I can do for me, not for anybody else. Yeah. I love that. I so love that. I want to talk to you. You were talking a little bit about how you started to get into self-help and I've noticed Hmm. you post a lot of the Stoics is one of your- Daily Stoic every day. Yeah. So how did you get into the Stoics? Why do you like them? I I was a philosophy major, so- Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, oh, amazing. Now I know why you and Jade get along so well. (laughs) Uh, Awesome. Um, so it, it came to me during that time. I told you when I had like the worst kind of panic attack, uh, anxiety attack of my life. And uh, I realized that the physical work I was doing was all well and good, uh, the training, the nutrition, but I wasn't, my, my, my idea is, you know, I'm very holistic minded when it comes to wellness. And it was a hard realization, a hard wake up call for me that I'm not uh, taking care of my mental health, my emotional health. I need to get to know uh, there's more instead of working on all the external exterior stuff, I need to be working on the internal um, because it was just, all right, well, if I'm doing everything else, quote, right, what am I missing? And so actually Ryan Holiday, my very first experience with uh, personal development, getting to know, getting familiar with stoicism, um, I picked up Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. And that just slapped me in the face. Um, Every page, I remember... I shit you not. Sometimes I would put the book down and I have to take a walk in my apartment. I was like, no, like I am the biggest egotistical self-centered a-hole. And I I thought I was not, I thought I was a pretty good person. Of course, you know, that's the ego, I guess. Right. Um, It was just so eye-opening to me. And so I became obsessed with it. You're able to take that kind of a look at yourself, especially from reading. Yeah. 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 It was, it wasn't easy. It's not a, uh, it's not an easy pill to swallow. Um, but 
I was very willing, very committed to the work. And I knew that if I was deciding that this is the area of my life that is lacking and I'm committing to improving that, I have to commit to the work necessary to make those necessary improvements. And so Ryan Holiday sent me down a rabbit hole. I make, he's my favorite living author. I, I got Ego is the Enemy. I read Obstacles the Way. Uh, I got into all of his books. I found Stoicism through him. He had the Daily Stoic book. And uh, that is what, when you tell people you've been reading the same book every day for like four or five years, um, it sounds off. But what I love about that book is that it opened my eyes and was my entryway into other readings and, you know, all of Marcus Aurelius's memoirs and Seneca and Epictetus and um, all these other people. What I love about that book is that every day it's how I start my day. And if I start my day from that thing that served me immensely during such a pivotal moment in my life, it's like a, a way for me to constantly stay grounded there, stay tethered um, to, it, to make that part of my daily practice. So every day, the first thing I do, um, I, I read that, that day's section from the book. It's like a little, you know, kind of daily devotional, you know, daily tidbit thing. Um, and I've been posting it on, it's the first thing I share on social media every day now for years. Um, yeah, it's been great. That's been my entryway to stoicism. Wow. That's awesome. So it sounds like it was not only your entryway to stoicism and a huge part of, uh, your personal development journey, um, but you created a morning routine out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Do you feel like that has made a big difference in your day-to-day productivity? Your, has that had an impact on you? A lot of people talk about morning routines and yeah. you know, for oh. some people it's a be all end all. For some people they're like, you know, it doesn't matter, you know? Oh no. Yeah. If, if my routine gets thrown off, like the rest of my day is totally thrown off. Um, I mean, it sets the tone for my day. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but you know, it's so true. Like if you start the day off taking care of your basic human needs, then every other person you meet, every other task, all of those needs are going to be just taken care of, or you're going to be showing up the best version of you possible. And so, yeah, it has been an instrumental part of my morning routine of, of just, you know, being able to wake up without an alarm, you know, my bedtime routine, morning routine, waking up pretty much the same time every day, trying to wake up, go greet the sun, pound some water. Um, I have like a little morning health cocktail of uh, some super greens, some medicinal mushrooms some collagen um, just to flood my body with hydration, micronutrients. And then I immediately then turn to the daily stoic. And then after that, then I'm like, okay, I'm prepared. My body is taken care of. My body has been nourished and hydrated. Uh, I got my sunlight. Uh, and now my mind, I can, I can anchor my mind and uh, set the mood, set the intention for the day. That's awesome. So I have one more question for you about the current time that we're in, you know, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, the whole, <laughs> I know it's, it's a crazy, crazy time the past six months. Um, what are your thoughts about like the current state of, you know, things? Yeah. Yeah. Great way to put it. Just things. Just things, you know, like, well, I think people's health has been very much impacted. We've had lockdowns. We were talking about a lot of people's fitness routines were thrown off because a lot of gyms, especially in California, they were all shut down. Um, You know, so I guess what is your thoughts on it from the perspective of like health and wellness? How do you think that's impacted people? And what are your thoughts on it from a, I guess just like, you know, policy perspective and like how, where, where we're going and yeah. What have yeah. you comment on? Yeah. <laughs> I'll answer the kind of the second part first. Um, okay. you, you said policy and 
anyone who knows me, I'm a big rule follower. Okay. Um, I'm very kind of like, I will not cross the street until the, the light says go kind of thing. And I will only go to the crosswalk. <laughs> um, and you know, to a, to a degree, I understand I'm probably a little bit too boxed in. Um, in a lot of ways, especially in business, not to go down a rabbit hole, I absolutely have found value and necessity to bend the rules, break the rules, or just question, like, who made this rule? Why, why am I putting this limiting factor on myself? Is this real? Is it legal? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, a lot of that I give credit, you know, I attribute to my time in the military. You live your day by rules and policies. Uh, and then before that, you know, growing up, I grew up in a very religious household, Southern Baptist in, you know, the South, uh, Southwest Virginia. And so there were hard rules all the time. And so it is a big part of just who I am because of how I was raised, um, which I totally recognize now. But yeah, I will, I understand how rules help us. And a lot of rules are there for the greater good. Uh, and this may just be the military me coming out, but a lot of rules that are in place, uh, I think are there for the greater good. And most other people, if you're not a part of that rulemaking process or the rule enforcing process, you don't fully understand it because you don't fully like you're not well versed in it or you know you're you weren't a part of the reason why it was created or you're just not a part of the governing body you're not in the military you're not in politics you're not whatever so uh you know I, i'm very grateful to be in a country country where we can publicly challenge that we can publicly voice our opinion on that but for a lot of reasons and a lot of rules i i do support them and i understand that i may not like them and it may cause a lot of discomfort for me or change even some daily living, but I respect them. Mm -hmm. I will say over the years, and especially during COVID, during this global pandemic and shutdown, um, it has really challenged me to challenge them a lot more. And instead of just old chase of this is the rule and you don't need to question it, this is the rule, just do it or don't do it. Now I'm very curious. Um, why is that the rule? Is the rule to protect one group of people? Is it, protect, is it to protect the person who made it? Or if the rule is, by my own logic, if the rule is for the greater good, then you know, please tell me, what is the greater good? Define for me the greater good that you're making this rule for. So we, the, the greater, <laughs> the group needs to decide if the greater good is going on here. Um, so it's been definitely, I've been challenged that a lot more. But then to kind of go to your first part of the question, the whole health and wellness part of it, um, I am not one of the people who think this is a, you know, a conspiracy. I don't think it's made up. Uh, I personally know several people actually who have been affected by it. And one of my best friends right now is actually going through it. And he's like, this sucks. It really sucks. And so um, my wife is a nurse practitioner. And so she's working with patients, you know, every day. And, um, you know, I came from a clinical background. I worked in a clinical model. And so I fully understand and like rules, I respect them. I respect the science. I understand it. And I think how I'm different from a lot of maybe the public or not the average Joe is, uh, I, I, I studied it. I know it. I, I, I fully understand what's going on. Um, which we all should be working towards. I'm not saying we all need to get a master's degree or, you know, in epidemiology or whatever, but. Um, if Although I think everybody has through social media, haven't they? True. Yeah, everyone's an epidemiologist now. Yeah. And everybody is suddenly in law enforcement too. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a, a dichotomy. You know, it's a little bit of a duality, I'll say, of 
challenging the rules. And I do think at this point now, it's been what, seven, eight months, seven months. Um, a big part of me believes this has really turned into a lot of a, of a political statement, a lot of political division, um, political control. Sure. Um, and I'm not even a political guy at all. Um, I didn't join the military because of, you know, someone was in office or not in office. I, I joined for my own reasons. Um, I know law enforcement officers a lot are the same way. Um, but I do think it has gotten political in a lot of ways. So I guess where I'm at now is um, I've shut off mainstream media. I haven't looked at the news and I don't even know how long. Um, but I pop my head up to trusted resources um, and I do my homework and I do my research and I do my due diligence and um, I respect other people. And I go about my day now in a much different way than I did even, you know, a month, two months ago. Um, and uh, it's, you know, trust but verify truly is really where I'm at. Um, understanding and respecting and, you know, always looking at the science um, and respecting and trusting rules, but, but questioning them a lot more. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, that's a great journey. I think that's where we should be. You know, it's not that you don't dismiss all of the rules, but you also just don't take them at blind, you know, right. have some personal, I think critical thinking is really what we should all be implementing every day of life. Right. That's, that's yeah. one of the things that makes us human is our ability to have, yeah. you know, yeah. so I think that that's something we should really, we should hone those skills. And I think that's really important. And it's one of the, I think, I personally think it's one of the things that's so great about being an American is that you can have yeah. thinking and you can challenge, you know, things that seem to be, you don't have to take something as face value. Exactly. And you don't have to pick sides either. No, you don't have to say I'm left or right or I'm up yeah. or I'm down. Um, it's, you can just, you can. No, that's the whole can, thing. Yeah. That's the whole uh, purpose behind critical thinking is that it's not about taking sides. It's about taking the information and discerning for yourself. Like where, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to absolve yourself of bias. I mean, we can only see right, the right. Eyes, right? You know, um, we don't get to go put on somebody else's pair of eyes and yeah. their whole, uh, you know, set of uh, their makeup. To we're not that far in the future yet where we can do yeah. that. Yeah. We're not there. We, you know, we're basically, we're inside our box and we can see there, you know, if we inside our box, we don't know what's outside of it, you know, until we can jump out of it. Um, so and that actually, that's a derail your, your statement there, but yeah. um, that actually is one of a great way to kind of define my life journey, personal development, professional journey over the past, um, honestly, ever since I got out of the military. So the past, I'd say really the last six, seven years okay. um, is learning, really was just first learning that I was in a box. I was living in a box. Wow. Um, and then recognize, like that's, that's a big thing to become aware of first. Yeah. And then after that was, okay, well, who designed the box? What do I believe? What do I believe to be true? What do I not believe to be true? Or what do I, what am I not sure of yet? And there, what am I going to commit to figuring out? Yeah. Um, one of the best ways yeah, to really kind of sum up really everything I've been talking about is just, yeah. we all are in a box. We all have bias. Uh, we all are, have grown up with uh, certain influences, lack of influences, belief systems, um, and, and really the best way to work through that all is, is kind of recognizing that none of it's good or bad. It just has been what it has been. And now we get the opportunity. Like, it's like when the robots and movie become self-aware, like that's the moment when you become aware of like, wait a minute, 
I get to choose if I keep living in this way. I get to choose if I keep living in this box or not. I get to choose if I believe what I was brought up to believe. Um, that could be just about nutrition or religion, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and now I get to go search out and find my own and I either get to keep this box that I have or maybe blow out this wall and just rebuild one because everything else is great. Or maybe it's time to demolish the whole damn thing and go start with brand new construction. And we get the choice. We get that choice. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And yeah, that's probably a really great thing to end on. Uh, <laughs> you have, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add or yeah? Or any advice um, you have for people or yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, keep tuning in to people like Courtney and keep, you know, listening to things that, you know, maybe you wouldn't listen to or that you do listen to just right now. Um, this time in 2020, these last several months, uh, I think a lot of people have been questioning a lot of things. And I think now I'm very grateful for my own life and what I'm seeing in my family, my friends and society. Um, I think we are in another great awakening. I think that we, we should be, and we should be asking a lot more questions and challenging things in a very healthy, um, you know, in a true debate way, not like I'm right, you're wrong, but like, let's debate, let's talk about it. Let's, let me learn your side. Let me share with you mine. And we don't have to agree. Um, but you know, at least now we're more educated and more aware and how we can kind of live together kind of thing. Um, I, I would, I would say just keep learning keep learning. You know, the second we shut out everything and everyone in the entire world, that's the second when we go back to that box, we go back to all of our bias and, um, and everyone loses. So keep questioning, keep being a student, keep being a sponge, um, trust, but verify, and then don't be afraid to then formulate your own opinion and share it and uh, get out there and put that into the world, you know? I love it. I love that so much. That's awesome. Well, tell everyone where they can find you and I'll have links. To that. Oh, great. Thank you so much. It's been so good on here. I've really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank me you. Too. Um, pleasure. So if you've enjoyed listening to me at all, this is what I do all the time. Now my show ever forward radio, we release episodes uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday currently. Um, and it's everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Everforward Radio, you can find us. Uh, I'm either talking on the podcast or on Instagram at Chase underscore tuning. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chase. It's been really, truly a pleasure. Love My honor. Time. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.